All right, so when I was in college, so long ago now, um, I spent some time on the mission field in Mexico. Now, you've heard some of these stories over the years, and that's what happens when a pastor stays long enough with the church is that you become more familiar and you can tell your pastor's stories. But I served as a worship leader uh, for one of these times for a whole, for a whole summer. Um, doing uh, mission work for this mission organization that was uh, set up at a border town in Texas. And then they would coordinate for these local churches from across the country to come down and then get them across the border and to serve churches and communities in a border town in Mexico. Now, some of the churches that I interacted with were from a charismatic background. Now, before I continue, I have to say that there are some things that I truly enjoy about Pentecostalism, such as the emphasis that preaching and gathering should put on the hearts, because we are to love the Lord Jesus with all of our hearts. I love that. And the emphasis that is put on the Holy Spirit, because he is our comforter, he is our indweller. Love those components. All right. Now, one night, early on in the summer, I was talking with a guy from a church group about the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. I had just turned 18 years old. My parents wouldn't let me leave Tampa until I turned 18 for this little adventure. I barely knew anything about this thing called charismatic gifts. So one night, we were hanging out in like this kind of like mess hall, like soup kitchen environment, and it's like midnight, and we're talking theology. And he asked me if I had been baptized. I said, yeah, I've been baptized. I was baptized when I was 16 years old. But he meant another baptism, a different baptism than water baptism. He meant the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I started scratching my head, and I was like, I don't really know what you mean by this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But he told me that night that I would know if I was truly baptized by the Holy Spirit because I would then speak in tongues. I told him, I don't speak in tongues. I don't even, like, I don't know what you're talking about right now. So he told me that over the course of the summer, as we're doing this together, we're doing this ministry together, that I should pray to God and ask him to give me the gift of tongues. So I did. 18-year-old Joe in McAllen, Texas, in this little mission camp, praying to God, give me the gift of tongues. After some time, I reconnected with him, and I said, you know, it's been like a month now. I still don't speak in tongues. And then one night, he told me that there was a reason for this. There was a reason why I don't speak in tongues. And he told me this, if I believed God, if I truly believed God, and I trusted God enough for this, that I would speak in tongues. To support himself, and there, here's the whole connection, to support himself in his discussion with me about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, he used a variation of this morning's hard saying, that if I just had faith as a mustard seed, that I could do the charismatic, that I could do the supernatural, I believe that Jesus disagrees with my friend as to what the miraculous and the supernatural is. That's the context of today's hard saying. The miraculous in Luke 17 isn't the supernatural ability to do charismatic things, but it's simply the miracle 
of experiencing and extending the forgiveness we've experienced in Christ to others. And that is what God has given us mustard-sized faith towards, which we'll see today as we unravel and untie this knot. Are you ready to get started? All right, let's get to our proposition. So you're going to see today through this hard saying that it is God who gives you as the Christian the capacity of faith to live for Christ. That faith is not this thing that you have to muster up yourself, that you have to keep saying, I need to believe more, I got to believe more, I got to trust more, I got to do this, I, I, I. It is God who gives this gift. So where I believe that Jesus and my charismatic friend diverge from each other is on the very nature of what faith is. My friend portrayed the idea that faith is my contribution to Christianity. Faith is my contribution to my personal relationship with Jesus. So if I trust God more, if I would just believe God more, then surely I would speak in tongues. Jesus disagrees with this understanding of faith. In fact, I think Jesus would look at my friend and say, that is not faith at all. That is not my father's work of faith. Jesus would say that faith is not my contribution to our relationship. Jesus would say that faith is his father's contribution in my heart between my relationship with his son. So the gospel is this. You will never muster up enough faith on your own to believe God. It's not humanly natural for you to do this. You don't have the natural capacity for this. Therefore, God the Father must do this work in you. Which is why last year, as we went through our Safe and Sound series on Wednesday nights, we embraced this fact that God's work of regeneration taking out your old heart, giving you a new one, giving you his spirit, that God's work of regeneration has to precede your confession of faith. This faith does enable us to do the supernatural. But what Jesus means by this in Luke 17 is that God's work of faith in us to experience him will show up supernaturally, and how we experience and extend forgiveness to others. That is the miraculous work of God in us. Extending Christ's forgiveness to the people in your lives is not natural. We'll say, forgive me, or I forgive you, but we hold on to things, right? For the next time, and we can add that to what they're currently doing in our lives. Let's be honest. That proves that Christ's forgiveness is not natural for you and I. And it necessitates the fact that it must be God's work in us to show other people the type of forgiveness that you first experienced in Jesus. So today, we are going to look at the context of Jesus' heart saying, faith is a mustard seed, that you can tell things to do whatever you want and it will obey you. So we'll do that. Then we're going to look at the very nature of faith, that it is God who gives faith. And it's God who determines the capacities of faith that he gives to us. And it's up to God to grow our capacity of faith. Then we're going to look at how this work of faith impacts our everyday lives as Christians. And then we're going to look at how this is meant to show up in our relationships to people, to your church family, 
marriages, families, work, interactions with non-Christians. And I pray that you're going to be encouraged today that if your faith is just the size of a mustard seed, that you have all that you need to love and to live for Jesus in this life. Amen? You don't need anything more. All right, let's get started with our first point. So we're going to see in our first point that it is God's work of faith that enables you to live as a Christian. Today's hard saying actually has two contexts, but just so we don't have another hour sermon, I'm just going to address the context that precedes verse 6. So there is a context afterwards that has another application to this statement, but I'm just doing verses 1 through 5 to help us understand verse 6. I'm going to focus on the context before so that you see that one of the applications of verse 6 about doing the miraculous and the supernatural is actually just extending Christ-like forgiveness to the people in your lives. There's a different application as well afterwards, but that will just have to be a sermon for another time. We're going to start right now with the knot, with verse 6, and then we'll untie it by going to context. So let's look at verse 6. Jesus says, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This verse necessitates the idea that we talk through as a church family, that we are not meant to read verses in isolation from the rest of the Bible. Because if you just isolated this verse and just read it and read this verse alone with no context, just with these words for itself, not in relationship to the rest of the Bible's arc for our lives of redemption, we would look at this and say, we get it. We would understand why a charismatic would put so much emphasis on having faith in your words, right? We see this because just looking at this, if you just have enough faith and tell this mulberry tree to do something, even the natural order would obey you. This sounds good. This sounds engaging. It sounds humanistic, and it's so appealing to many people. But the question that we have to say is this, and we have to ask is this. Does our Lord, does our Master, does our Redeemer truly want us to untie this knot this way? And the answer is, of course, no. Matthew 17 actually adds on to this. In Matthew 17, um, Jesus says something like, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that you can move mountains. All right, so the message is clear. If you isolate, if you have enough faith in God, you have power in your words that has command over the natural order. And that's how some traditions untie this knot. But we have to begin to untie this knot by asking, what is the very nature of faith? Now, let me tell you first what the original word was that Jesus used and what Matthew and Luke and the other gospel writers used when they wrote our English word for faith. It means simply for you to be apprehended by something. So you think of like a police officer arresting somebody. They apprehend them, right? That's what this word for faith means. It means to be apprehended. Or it could mean to be persuaded by. No matter which meaning you take, the focus isn't actually on you. You're not the subject of faith. You are the recipient of faith. Faith is done to you. You don't apprehend God. 
and then make faith happen to you. God apprehends you, and he creates faith in you. Do you get that? That is the very nature of faith. Faith does not originate in you. You're not the source of faith. You are the recipients of faith. Faith is God's gift to you. God gives you the faith to change how you see and how you feel about his son, Jesus. Now, whether you know this about me or not, you should know, I think you should know, that one of my uh, favorite modern Christian songwriters was a man named Rich Mullins. Does anybody know this about me already, by chance? I also loved Keith Green. He wrote, like, in the 70s, died tragically. Rich Mullins wrote a song called Creed. Now, you may not know Creed through Rich Mullins. You probably know because it was on the radio because Third Day did it in the early 2000s. They kind of redid it. In this song, Rich Mullins outlines what is orthodox, normal Christianity. And in the chorus, he sings this. He says, he sings, I believe what I believe. It is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It's the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. That sounds good, right? That is good theology in a song. And I believe that when Rich died in a car accident in the late 90s, and he stood before our Lord and Savior, that Jesus told Rich, well done in crafting that course. I believe that. We don't make faith as Rich sung. Faith makes us. Faith is not our invention. It is the work of God. So if you have any skeptics in your life, if you have anybody who's very cynical about Christianity, that it's some man-made religion, you have something now that you can arm yourself with to help them consider a different points of view. That faith is not what we create. It's not our invention. It's God's work in us. And see how they respond to that. Now let's talk about this phrase, faith like a mustard seed. The mustard seed was among the smallest of seeds in first century Middle East agriculture. It starts as a small seed and it grows into a large tree. It is amazing. And yet again, I think another proof you can share with a skeptic about Christianity. How can something so small have the blueprints to grow into something so big, so complex, so enjoyable, right? It's because God is a brilliant, beautiful creator, and he can take something that's this small, become big and glorious and life-giving. Jesus' point in referring to the mustard seed is that small faith can accomplish big things. But where we disagree, and where I think Jesus may disagree with a charismatic who uses verse 6 to go somewhere that Jesus doesn't want to go, is that Jesus would disagree as to what the big thing is. The mulberry tree is forgiveness. That's what the mulberry tree. The mountain that you can move is forgiveness, not something big and charismatic. Now let's talk about this mulberry tree and this mountain a little bit more. How literally possible or probable is it for me to tell a tree or to tell a mountain to get up? And then, even if it did, to say, hey, tree, get up. Hey, Rockies, get up and move. 
and it doesn't. The point is, it's impossible. Jesus wants to know that, wants us to know that whatever this mulberry tree is in our life, whatever this mountain is in our life, it is impossible for you and me to muster enough power to do on our own. Our words do not have the literal power to uproot trees and mountains and move them. Jesus means something far more deeper and far more precious than power in the spoken word. Jesus' point is that his Father's work of faith in us can do impossible things, and specifically, the impossible thing that Jesus charges his people with is to extend his forgiveness to others in his name. We cannot do this on our own. Can we extend the social media, culturally acceptable point of view of forgiveness? Yes, we can. But can we forgive like Jesus did on the cross? We cannot. That work has to be done in us. So right now, we need to come to an agreement as a church family. We need to agree with the scriptures that it is God who gives faith to us. And faith is not our contribution to our relationship with Jesus. And with that, I just got to go to my brother Paul in Romans 12, 3 to help you see this. Paul says, through the grace that is given to me, it didn't originate in himself, here's what Paul says to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And here's the phrase I want you to see. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. The problem with believing that if you have much faith, that you can do charismatic things, is that it sets up the Christian to think more highly of himself or herself as he or she ought. I have enough faith. I can do these things. And it will tempt you to believe that you are better than the Christian across the way that cannot do these things. Do you get that? Do you see how that application of theology totally disregards other verses like this? If you believe that faith is your contribution and you look at somebody that you perceive to have a smaller amount of faith, you will look down on that brother. And you will look down on that sister. And you will totally disregard Romans 12.3 in your life. And then you will cause, like my friend Sly, when I was 18 in Mexico, you will be tempted to think, I don't do supernatural things. I guess I'm not as good of a Christian as you are. But the Bible totally disagrees with this teaching of faith. Whatever measure of faith that you believe you have in your life, a mustard seed or more, we all have different capacities of faith. We do. But the ultimate reason for this is that God has allotted that faith to us. That's the teaching of Paul, and that is the teaching of Jesus in Luke 17. But here's the thing, Christian, and I hope this is an encouragement to you. Whatever measure of faith that God has given to you today, that is all that you need today. doesn't matter if it's a mustard seed or bigger. I don't know what is the biggest seed in agriculture. I don't know. I should have researched it, I guess. An avocado size? I don't know. My brain was just going. 
doesn't matter if you believe your faith is the size of a mustard seed or an avocado seed. Whatever God has given you today, he has given to you. You didn't come up with yourself, and that is all that you need today to live well for Jesus. Therefore, the quantity of your faith is not Jesus' focus here. The source of your faith is Jesus' focus. My friend's religion puts an unnecessary and unbiblical burden on people because it is performance-based. It's religion and not a personal relationship with Jesus because you have to believe more. You have to trust more. You have to do more. You have to pray more. And if you do, then you can do supernatural things. And if you cannot, it's because you're not praying enough, you're not believing enough, you're not trusting enough. And the gospel 100% disagrees. And I wish when I was 18 years old, I could have been able to articulate that to him. I knew him for a couple more summers after that because I did several summers in Mexico. And we had some wonderful conversations. But I wish I could talk to Sly today and say, let's talk about this, brother, out of Christian love. God's gift of faith in you enables you to do things that was once against your nature. And Jesus begins to outline one thing that is against your nature and one thing we have to think about in application in verses 1 through 5. And that's where we're going now. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus tells the apostles, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But here's a warning. Woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, if you've paid attention so far between verse 1 and verse 6, you see something parallel to each other, something in common. Verses before, we mention and we read about a mulberry tree being thrown into the sea. Something else gets thrown into the sea. Do you see that? Someone who has caused a little one to stumble. So in essence, you are the mulberry tree not doing charismatic things. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it's better for you to be thrown into the sea. So Jesus talks here about stumbling blocks. The priority that Jesus is giving to the apostles, and I think to all of his people, then and now, is that we are not meant to be stumbling blocks or obstacles to Jesus in the lives of others. That must be a priority, that your faith, your relationship with God, it is personal, but it's not private. And the things that you say, the things that you do, how you act, how you don't act, your presence or your lack of presence, it can be used as stumbling blocks to your brothers in Christ, or it can be used to give clear access to Jesus. Those are the choices set before you. And as the people of God, we have to ask Jesus, which path do you want me to take? Jesus is clear. He wants his people to make it a priority to not set stumbling blocks in front of people. That's our aim as Christians, to make a person's path between them and Jesus as clear and accessible as possible. The people of Jesus are not meant to be obstacles for others to see and to get to Jesus. Now, even though Jesus specifically mentions these little ones, And about stumbling, I do not believe that Jesus exclusively means children. 
because John also uses this precious phrase in his writing, and he is addressing all of the little ones in the church that he's writing to, just meaning all the Christians. Whether it's a child who is a Christian to the adult who is a Christian, the people of Jesus must make it a priority that the things they say, the things they do, cannot be used as stumbling blocks for others to get to Jesus, for others to see Jesus, for others to experience Jesus. But let's jump to the other side now. Let's get to the tension and to the contrast. But Jesus says in the beginning of this verse that it's inevitable. Do you see that? The people of Jesus are going to sin. We are going to say something and do something that dishonors what God has done for us in Jesus. That's the reality. And if you don't come to your personal relationship with Jesus this way, if you don't come to loving a church family with this knowledge, you will be disappointed and you will stumble. Your pastor will disappoint you. He will say something. He will do something. And another brother or sister in Christ will say or do something eventually. Jesus says it is inevitable. The people of Jesus sin when we miss the mark of loving Jesus with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength. The people of Jesus sin when we fail and we fall short to love people, to love the Christian the way God outlines, and to love non-Christians in the way that God outlines. We are going to stumble in these things, and it is inevitable, which is why we need to see the gospel as not something that you embrace as a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or a 15-year-old. That the gospel is something you need today, and the gospel is something you need tomorrow. The gospel isn't something we should just preach on Easter Sunday and on Good Friday, but it should be something that you listen to and rely upon every single day because it is inevitable that you are going to stumble. You get it? So the people of Jesus need to know the areas in life where we are going to stumble, where we are going to sin. And verses 3 and 4 helps us with this. Let's take a look at it. He says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, American churches don't like that idea. American culture doesn't like this. Let's keep going. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Can you begin to see why faith cannot be your contribution here? Because what man and what woman naturally can do this? I think the closest expression is probably motherhood to children, but even motherhood falls short in this area. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are going to fail you. It's going to happen because they are just as human. They are just as flawed. They are just as sheepy as you are. They too have new hearts, the spirit of God indwelling them, stuck in old flesh, just like you, just like me. So when there is sin, hurt, brokenness between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, between two Christians, there is going to be an opportunity for an obstacle to develop that obstructs your view of Jesus or their view of Jesus. And you have to be armed with this right now and know before you walk out today. That's how church families survive the ages. And not just do this or close the door in 10 years. When a new pastor comes, they shut the door. This is how a church survives in application 
Jesus tells us what to do when this situation happens. The first thing that he tells us is to be on our guard. Do you see that? It means you have to be ready. You have to come into a relationship knowing some of the things that could happen. Every relationship needs this, Christian or non-Christian. We need to be on a common ground on the things that could happen in this relationship. We need to be ready and aware that sometimes we are going to say and do things that hurt each other, that could potentially be used as a stumbling block and an obstruction to Jesus. That is going to happen. So we need to be ready, therefore, to move on to what's next, which is repentance, reconciliation, and forgiveness. We need God's work of faith in us to experience this for ourselves and then then to extend this to other people. So Jesus says that when a brother or a sister sins, Jesus wants that other Christian brother or sister to step into their lives, to come alongside them, and this is harsh language, but he says to rebuke them. Do you see that? We've talked, y'all did not, there's no shaking heads. Do you see this? We have to, we have to be on common ground here. If the brother sins, you are to rebuke him. And you say, that's not my personality, Pastor. I'm introverted, I'm non-confrontational. Before you are an introvert, and before you are non-confrontational, you are a Christian, made in the image of God. And the point is today, even faith the size of a mustard seed can enable you to do all that God has called you to do as a Christian. And this is one thing that God has called you to do as a Christian. Oh, if you could see me after every time I hang up the phone with a Christian, Every time I have an intense one-on-one conversation with a Christian, if you could see me afterwards, you would know it's not for anyone. No one has the heart for this on their own. You would see how it kills me, how it crushes me. But this is the Christian life, right? There are things that God calls us to do that is not according to our nature. But even the smallest size of faith can enable us to do that is the things that are not according to our nature. By rebuke, let's be specific here. Jesus means to exhort. Jesus means to admonish. So the writer of Hebrews says about stimulating, about pushing each other. This person is getting off track of Jesus, and you're literally just trying to be used by God just to push them back to where they were before that particular situation. That's what Jesus means here. We also know because we talked about this as a church family on a Wednesday night. We looked at Matthew 19 in the recent years of church family, that the very first setting where this takes place, and this should take place for a season of time, is between you and another Christian privately. We've talked about this as a church family, right? When we know that a brother or sister in our church family sins, we go through a season where we're speaking to them privately about it. And we've talked about how there's many things that you do not know that I've had to share with you, and you had no idea during the days, the weeks, the months, or even the years, because I was having private conversations with people about those things. Okay, so the first setting is private. The goal of rebuking someone privately, Jesus says in the next step, is repentance. And that's where we go next. The road that that person is heading down is going to end in dishonor, both for themselves and for the Lord Jesus, if they continue on this new path. Your rebuke is a God-given opportunity 
for your brother or sister to see the direction that they are going down and to stop and to turn, which is essentially what the word repent means. To repent means that you stop where you're at and you turn around. That's it. Jesus tells us what to do when the brother or the sister receives that exhortation. They receive that encouragement and they repent. Jesus tells us then to forgive them. This, like we did comically a couple Wednesdays ago, what Jesus is meaning here is not the brother going to the other brother with that little speck in their eye. Remember when Vernon taped that little speck on his eye on a Wednesday night? And then I had that big old log in my eye? That's not what Jesus is referring to here. The context, the situation here, is that that brother actually has the log. And yeah, you have sin too in your life, but it's not a log right now. We do this when there is a log that is obstructing a person's view to Jesus. That's when we do this. The point of exhorting and repenting is for that Christian who has stumbled to experience anew the joy of forgiveness in Christ, to experience the conviction of the cost that Jesus paid to purchase that forgiveness, and then to experience the joy of what forgiveness means. I think the best of all marriages begin to smallly whisper this. When that other person, when your spouse knows all of your sins and they love you anyway, that begins to mirror just a little bit of what Jesus wants to happen in this grand scale between us and him and us and God using a church family for us to experience this with Jesus. But once again, and I've said this in recent weeks, America has not taught its people well to respond to criticism, to respond when someone challenges the way you want to speak, the hobbies you want to have, the way you want to live, anything that challenges our lifestyle. And here's the thing, that doesn't automatically change because you're saved, because you say that you're a Christian. This stuff creeps into church families. We have to remember here that the gospel forever links together forgiveness with joy. And let's think about that for a moment before we move on. Do you remember when King David was rebuked by Nathan the prophet over his adultery with Bathsheba? Do you remember that? It's intense. We're just like, you are that man. Remember that? Like one of the most iconic lines of the Bible. Do you remember what David did after Nathan rebuked him? He wrote Psalm 51. And I want to remind you of one of the phrases he said in Psalm 51. It's Psalm 51.12. It's not in our, it's not coming up on the screen. But in Psalm 51.12, after he talks about repentance and sin in his life, he says something like this. He prays to God, restore to me, remember, this isn't in a moment of repentance and forgiveness. David prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's beautiful. That's precious. And God doesn't just want David to experience this through Nathan. God wants you to experience this joy in the midst of falling short, joy in the midst of repentance, joy in the midst of forgiveness, and he wants to use, not Nathan the prophet, he's been long gone, and no matter what Saul wants to do, you can't bring prophets back from the dead in a way that honors God. Because that witch of Endor, she was a little crazy there. Anyway, 
God wants to use your brothers and sisters in Christ through your church family for you to experience what David experienced, the joy of the return of salvation. The experience of forgiveness ends in joy. There is joy to experience when our sins are found out, and yet the people of Jesus love us anyway. Right? This is what non-Christians need to see in us. As we're getting to the Easter season, they don't need to see helicopter wonderlands. They need to, non-Christians need to see how we love each other. That we know each other's sins, we know exactly where they fall short, and yet we love them with all that God has in us anyway. That's what people need to see. That's what the Christian needs to see, and that's what the non-Christian needs to see. This is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our sins. And yet, like we sang before, before the preaching, he took them on his shoulders anyway. Who does that but the God-man? Who, who else does that? And this is what Jesus' people must do for each other. And it is impossible to do this. If you think that faith is your contribution to your relationship with Jesus... Now let's talk about the Greek word for forgiveness. It's actually really similar to the Greek word for divorce, but that's a story for another time. But it means to leave something where it is and walk away. That's what forgiveness means. And that is, once again, counter-natural to what we do. We say we forgive each other, but we don't leave that sin where it is and walk away. We kind of have it in our back pocket, right? because that person is going to mess me up again. And when he or she does, I'm taking it out. Look what you did, right? That's how human forgiveness goes. But that isn't how Christian forgiveness goes. Remember, Christians and non-Christians do many of the same things. They both give, they both serve, they both love, they both get married, they both have kids. But Christians do it for a fundamentally different reason. Christians and non-Christians both forgive. But only the non-Christian can forgive like Jesus. Because only the, sorry, only the Christian can forgive like Jesus. Because only the Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. The Christian, first and foremost, is called to leave their sins and their burdens on the cross. That's why Jesus bore it. So you don't have to. Repentance and forgiveness is the experience of the cross. The cross is the power behind our repentance. And the cross is the cost of our forgiveness. Now, right before Jesus' heart saying, look at the apostles' reaction to what Jesus just said to them. Look at verse 5. They say to Jesus, increase our faith. They are just like my friend Sly. They believe they have to have more, more quantity of faith to be able to do what Jesus just told them. And that is why Jesus goes right into, no, no, I don't need to increase your faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can do this. Amen? So good. What Jesus is calling the apostles to and the Christians to is so big that they are overwhelmed. And I hope that you are overwhelmed right now too. That means you're in good company then. You're with Peter, James, and John. Even if our brother or sister in Christ sins against you seven times a day and repents seven times and asks for forgiveness 
as the people of Jesus, we say yes and amen. We say, here you go. Here's forgiveness. Here is reconciliation. And that is the miraculous, supernatural work of God in the Christian. And you cannot do this on your own. The apostles do not need a giant size faith to exhort, to repent, or to forgive. They only need faith the size of a mustard seed. That's how we untie the knot as a church family, okay? Jesus does not mean these charismatic, crazy, supernatural, inexplicable things. The smallest of faith engages you with all that you need to live well for Jesus in this life. That's how we untie the knot. The quantity of our faith is not the focus of this text. The source of faith is. Faith is the gift of God in our lives. And the smallest measure of faith is all that you need to experience forgiveness in Christ and to extend forgiveness to your fellow Christians. So we ask, how can this happen How can the people of Jesus then and now extend this kind of forgiveness? Because I'm telling you right now, if you've never been there, you're going to be there. When your faith feels so small, and when you have been sinned against seven times, eight times, nine times, ten times, and they keep sinning against you, you're going to be asking some questions. You are going to be struggling. You're going to ask God, why do they keep hurting me? Why do I have to keep forgiving them over and over again? And why do you keep allowing this to happen to me? Have you been there? If not, you're going to. Jesus said in verse 1, it is inevitable. Fallen world, fallen relationships. So we move to application so we can figure this out together as a church family. All right, so our application is this. This necessitates that you must depend on God's work in you to display his son to others. You can't fabricate in your relationship with a brother or sister something that's not really there and present in your heart. You can try. You can do it for days, weeks, months, or even years, but you cannot keep the act up forever. The flaws will begin to show. The facades will crack. The foundation will be revealed. You don't have faith on your own to extend this ocean of forgiveness to those who have sinned against you. That is why faith must be God's work in you. To live as a Christian among people, you must, this is non-negotiable, to live as a Christian among people, Christian or non-Christian, you must depend on God's work in you, not on your own strength, not on your own abilities. That is why all you need is faith as a mustard seed, because the focus of faith isn't you. The focus of faith is what Jesus has done for you. As Christians, we do not want to be occasions for stumbling. We don't want to be obstructions. We don't want to be obstacles in the lives of others to get to Jesus. We don't want our lives to block others from Jesus. Whether it's our spouses, our children, our family, our friends, we don't want to say or do things that stops them from being engaged and being around God. At least we shouldn't. We want our lives to put those in our lives that we love in the best position to be exposed to Jesus. So if God wants to work on their hearts, he can. But on the other hand, we are going to hurt people. We are going to sin against God. We are going to sin against Jesus. 
and we're going to sin against those in our lives that we even claim to love. So if we're going to navigate this as a church family, you have to experience the fact that faith is not your own, that it is the work of God in you, that God gives faith. So one more verse from Paul, this time in Ephesians 4, verse 7. Paul says, To each one of you, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul says that the the gift of grace and faith is something God gives. Paul says that this gift is according to the measure of Christ's gift. You get because Christ gave. You don't get because you created something inside of you. Think about it this way. What is Christ's gift to you but the cross? Think about that. The cross is the power behind forgiveness. The cross is the power behind repentance. And God has given you the grace, the gift, the capacity, the faith to extend that forgiveness to others when they hurt you. As Jesus took the cross to secure this for you, God gives you a measure of this gift to show it to others. So I want you to see one more verse at the very end of Paul's thinking in Ephesians 4 so you can make this concrete. So now in Ephesians 4, 32, just some sentences after that comment, Paul says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Pretty simple message, right? It's hard to mess that one up, isolating it from context. The question we ask is, how can I forgive the person who has sinned against me seven times, eight times, nine times, ten times? How can I forgive someone who keeps hurting me over and over again? And Paul says, under the inspiration of God the Spirit, that you must experience anew every time, time and time again, how God in Christ forgave you first. That's how you can do it. And you cannot do it unless you are daily experiencing the forgiveness that Jesus extended to you as a Christian. And you cannot do this if you think you no longer mess up. You cannot do this if you think you're no longer a sinner. You will say eventually, no to the cross. It's not for me. It is God's gift of faith worked in you that enables you to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving like Jesus. Amen? You can forgive your brother or sister for the seventh or the eighth time because you've experienced and you are experiencing forgiveness in your relationship with Jesus. That's how we can do it. You can forgive your brother or your sister in Christ because you know and you felt and you've experienced how much your sins cost Jesus. That's why you can bear this and leave it where it is and move on with that brother or sister because you know the cost that Jesus paid for you. This is what Jesus calls his people to do. And he gives us but a mustard-sized faith to do this. This is what Christians and non-Christians need to see in us, in our church family and outside this church. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you will know that they are Christians by their love. You'll know that they are disciples by their love. It's not the American culture's idea of love. 
This is what he means by love. This is real love. And you cannot display this kind of love to your brothers and sisters in Christ or to non-Christians if you don't already depend on your personal relationship with Jesus before that sin happens. It's like, okay, I've been sinned against. Let me go to the cross really quick, which you can for hurt and comfort. But you have to be experiencing that you are a sinner before you are sinned against. Or else you will turn to justice and injustice and vindication and vengeance. Or who knows what else. If you are not already relying on the sheer fact that what keeps you and Jesus together is forgiveness. He left it at the cross and the empty tomb. You cannot show the love of Christ if you have never experienced the love of Christ personally. So the question is, who or what do you ultimately depend on to live? If it isn't Jesus, you are going to stumble. That is a fact. Only Jesus picks up the burden, the sin that you are bearing, takes it to the cross, and dies for it. And Jesus says, all that you need to live for me is this small measure of faith that my Father has given to you. You don't need to work harder at being a Christian. Making sure you read all 25 daily readings in the month of March doesn't mean that you're a better Christian and you have more faith. I'm only saying that because it's the 26th, and if you were on track, then you finish up for the month. That does not mean you have more faith. You don't do it to get more faith. You need to depend on Jesus as if your life depends on it, because the reality is, is that it does. Jesus created all things with his spoken word, and he sustains all things with his word. You need to come back to the cross time and time again to remember the high cost that Jesus paid for your sins. So when you experience forgiveness for the 10,000th time in your personal relationship with Jesus, you will be able to forgive that brother or sister for the seventh time. Amen? And you'll do this even with the faith of a mustard seed.